Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Scott Yenner. He is professor of political science at Boise State University, whose new book is the topic of our conversation. The title is The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Uh, first, a general question comes up right in the introduction. You say on page five that, quote, marriage and family life can be leading edges for the purification of a political regime as it becomes more extreme. So somehow the family becomes uh, a measure, a, a, a sign, a representation of what is going on as politics gets more and more extreme in one way or another. How does that work? Well, um... I try to make the argument that there are principles of public justice and there are principles that guide family life. And those two things can't get too far out of whack. And uh, so in a modern democracy that emphasizes individual rights, we're going to have public justice that really seeks to secure individual freedom and uh, a culture that is gonna be dominated by a kind of individualism. And the family can either act as a brake or an accelerant on those principles of public justice. And, uh, and for most of American history, I would say that the family has been a sort of, a sort of community that uh, limits the expression or the experience of, uh, of individualism. But really in the last 50 years, uh, with the beginning of the sexual revolution, family has become, in a way, the leading edge of the transformation of the regime toward a more individualistic, autonomy-loving uh, regime and uh, less uh, finding less space for communal expressions or communal experiences. So, um, so you know, families can go in either direction, and uh, it really depends on the, the, the statesmen and the decisions made by the political community at any particular time whether the family is a break or a leading edge of reform. Right. You know, I, I, as I was reading in those opening sections, you know, one broader question just came to me, why in the modern world is autonomy so important? Why, why do people push so hard to maintain autonomy? Do, do you have a sort of a general answer to that question? Well, I mean, I think it's sewn deeply in the modern project. The, the way I look at autonomy is that it's, it's the capstone of two uh, deeply ingrained modern approaches to life. And uh, one of them is the idea that human beings should arrange their relationships according to contract. 
Another one is that human beings uh, should seek to conquer nature and make themselves masters and possessors of nature, as Descartes writes. And uh, autonomy combines both of those elements. Um, no relationship can be considered legitimate unless it springs forth from the human will, unshaped uh, or unaffected by anything outside of the will. That is uh, the, the way we understand contract today. And, uh, and, and, and the idea that nothing in our lives can really be a product, uh, can be legitimate as a product of, uh, unless it's a product of our will, is a way we understand how we conquer nature. Our bodies don't give rise to duties or obligations or any real sense of what our identity should be. So autonomy is the, is the view that, uh, that human beings need to make their identities uh, as they spring forth from the will. And, you know, I mean, I think ultimately that idea of autonomy, which, um, you know, uh, modern novelists like uh, Mary Shelley talk about in Frankenstein, you know, recognize that it's it's fundamentally a rejection of God and the idea that the world has an order outside of our will that is meaningful. So that autonomy really becomes a you know a public aspiration um, after belief in God wanes. And those two things kind of, it seems to me, rise and fall with one another. So it, I think it's a leading indicator of the, uh, of the lack of faith in, of those who live in the modern world. And it's always individual autonomy, correct? It's not family autonomy. We're not, we're not looking at the independence of a family unit. It always comes down to the one person. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it could come down to a collective idea of autonomy. Um, that is, maybe a political community could try to revolutionize itself and uh, without any limits and, and, and make itself into what it wants to be instead of what it was and reject its history. I think you could, you could understand autonomy on an individual level and you could understand it on a political level. But there's never a defense of the family. Uh, in between those two levels. So one way I would understand some of the social justice movements that we have going on now is that they are expressions of autonomy, but they're, a, they're a, of a group who's trying to remake and revolutionize the political order um, and make it into something that it never was and perhaps never can be. But, uh, but nevertheless, it the, the meaning of public justice will now spring forth from the will of that particular collective group or, of revolutionaries. But yeah, it never, it never is a defense of the family because family implies that there are duties and those duties um, are owed out, outside of one's will. So the family is always a challenge to individual autonomy. Part one has a title. Uh, with the term rolling revolution. What's the rolling revolution? Well, I, I, I argue that there are three aspects of the rolling revolution, uh, feminism, contemporary liberalism, and so, uh, sexual liberation theory. And they each announce principles for the reform of human life. But those principles can never be completed. We can never say that there has been enough transformation of the world to say that those principles have been realized and we can close up shop and uh, turn to something else. 
so that the revolution is always an ongoing activity, always rolling toward the next thing that needs to be accomplished. And since there seem to be permanent limits in human beings, there will always be a next thing for those ideologies to accomplish. So the image that I try to put forward in the book is kind of a snowball going down a hill, except, you know, there's no end. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's the idea of the rolling revolution. Now, one of the three strands you say is feminism. What was feminism's take on, let's just say, the traditional family at the beginning, in, in 1960, early 60s, and how has feminism's take on the family changed, or is it just a a reinforcement of feminism's early critique of the family's patriarchal, or you know, oppression of women, sexual sexual restraint, and so on? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. This is one of these uh, tough knots to cut in in the book, uh, defining what feminism is, and. Uh, Looking at the early, I think, most radical and self-conscious feminists of the 60s and 70s, and here I mean uh, ladies like Betty Friedan, Kate Millett, Shulamith Firestone, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, they, uh, they put forward the idea that feminism has three goals. The first goal is to end patriarchal socialization and achieve a kind of androgynous existence between men and women. The character of men and women won't be different if we can eliminate patriarchal socialization. The second pillar of feminism was to achieve economic and emotional independence for women from the family. And this would require not only having careers, but also liberating children from the family so that no woman or man would feel like they have to spend time in the family to raise the children. And then the third pillar is sexual liberation, or what Kate Millett says is the elimination of all sexual taboos because taboos have usually been designed to reinforce monogamous love and uh, the idea of marriage and family life. So those are the three pillars, but all of those pillars point toward what Shulamith Firestone calls the abolition of the family. That is, there can be no respectability for the family in public law or culture, and ultimately, perhaps people have to be forced not to live in families. So it needs to be dishonored and perhaps prescribed. Now, it's very difficult to find feminists today who say that their goal is to abolish the family, though they do exist, and, um, and we can talk about them if you'd like. But the, I would say that most of today's feminists have more moderate uh, and or modest ambitions, but those ambitions serve the ultimate purpose of the original feminists. So today, feminists are interested, for instance, in establishing something like free national daycare, perhaps universal preschool. And that's just the next reform that helps limit patriarchal socialization and make women and children more independent from the family. But after that reform is achieved, there'll be another. And so most of today's feminists are what I call in the book retail feminists. They're about selling the latest policy, but they don't think about the big picture or the universe of meaning that they're helping to make. And that universal meaning is really the aspirations put forward by the original feminists. So the formula is retail feminism serves radical feminism. I wonder how they would respond to 
some of the facts about, for instance, educational achievement, we know that women get bachelor's degrees, associate's degrees, significantly more than men do. Women are about 58% of all the bachelor's degree awards each year. They get more PhDs than men do and have for several years. In my area, the humanities, women get about two thirds of the PhDs. Medical school is now about 50-50. Uh, more women went to law school in the last few years than men went to law school. It's just the area of the STEM, the very hard STEM fields, not like psychology uh, or biology, but it, it's those hard number quantitative ones, those few computer science where men still vastly outnumber women. I mean, look at nursing, uh, for, for, for instance. How would they respond to those extraordinary advances? And actually, the women are superseding men as, as the majority in those professional spheres uh, coming up. How would they respond to that? Yeah, you know, I've, I've read, you know, hundreds of books of, uh, by feminists over the last uh, half a decade or so, Mark. And they rarely, if ever, actually confront those kinds of successes from their own movement's perspective. And they, they rarely take time to celebrate, and they spend much time um, uh, bemoaning what has, what, what has not yet been accomplished. And so that's one of the things that I really set out to do, uh, is to figure out what the fully built out feminist project would be. What could we say, if we could give Simone de Beauvoir everything she wanted, <laughs> what would the world look like? What would be the place of men? What would be the place of women? And uh, you know, it, and it's it, it's it's never painted. That picture is never painted in Beauvoir. Now, one place that I think you can look for it, and I don't talk about this in the book, but um, there was an old Russian revolutionary, uh, Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who wrote a book called "What Is to Be Done," which is really about um, the transformation of a particular girl whose name is Vera into a portrait of human perfection. And uh, there's an argument that Vera makes in the book to her lover. And she says in that argument that uh, women are superior. Women are superior um, intellectually, morally, uh, they're more conscientious than the men. And once the men aren't needed, they're gonna be kind of bums and they're not gonna be um, th that important for the future of society. And um, so it's possible that the culmination of feminist rule uh, feminist ideology is simply the rule of women and that those uh, those uh, facts that you point to about colleges and PhDs they're just really a you know we're, we're a third of the way there because we still don't have as many women CEOs or uh, we haven't had a woman president and so on and uh, so it's, I, I, as I say, I don't argue this in the book, but it's a question I've given a lot of thought to. Um, and, and it could be that the ultimate end of feminism is the rule of women. In part two, you detail various, quote, curbs on the rolling revolution. What are some of the things that hold or hinder or at least slow the rolling revolution that you detail? Yeah, I mean, I think there are physical things and I think there are moral things that make the completion of the rolling revolution uh, difficult to imagine. 
the um, so in the area of feminism, one of the curbs on the rolling revolution is the persistence of sex differences. And, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a complicated thing. And I think conservatives and Christians haven't always gotten this right because they rely on nature to put a limit on feminism. And they'll trot out the Horace quote that you can chase nature out with a pitchfork, but she always comes running back in. And I don't think it happens exactly like that. What, what feminism has done is that it has changed the nature of men and women. And it has bent them. But according to their, you know, I'll say, natural characteristics, it has bent them so that you can make women into careerists. Nature doesn't put a limit on that. However, there are going to be different kinds of careerists than men. But that nevertheless shows that there's going to be an, an, an obstacle to the achievement of an androgynous future. So I think nature, the 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 different physical and psychological characteristics of men uh, puts a puts a curb on what feminism can achieve. But also, and this is what I mean by a moral uh, moral curb on the achievement of the rolling revolution, there are human great human goods that uh, the sexual revolution broadly understood uh, seeks to undermine that human beings have a lot of attachment to. And the greatest of those goods is love. Love implies that a person will be dependent on another person. A husband will be dependent on a wife and a wife will be dependent on a husband for the communal uh, existence that they live together. And, uh, and feminism, sexual liberation really aim at achieving individual autonomy or individual independence. And as long as human beings are attracted to desire, a deep personal communal relation with another, that is dependence or interdependence on another, uh, the rolling revolution will run into that kind of moral limit. So there are physical limits to what can be accomplished, but there are also moral limits, goods that stand in the way that human beings, it, you know, most evidence would suggest, are loath to give up. You you talk about liberalism, the autonomy, and the sexual revolution. This is uh, another angle here. The sexual revolution has lifted a lot of the traditional sexual restraints. How does liberalism contend with the tensions and confusions raised by by the lifting of those restraints, for instance, the the you know explosion of divorce. Uh, this does cause problems for kids, for instance. Does liberalism? I mean, in, how does it rationalize or through policy make those problems go away, or at least appear to go away? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so broadly, I think. Liberalism isn't really as fundamental as feminism or sexual liberation theory. I think it's mostly a delivery system that delivers the population feminism and sexual liberation theory. And we can talk about that, but let's talk uh, we can talk about that more generally, but let's talk about it in the specific case of uh, we can use divorce or pornography or something. So 
Contemporary liberalism is the view is the view that the state should be neutral when it comes to moral controversies. So should people get married or not get married, the state can't say. Should people get divorced or stay married, the state can't say. So it, it has the effect of uh, not being able to put its thumb on any uh, scale of justice in order to encourage family life or not family life. At least that's what it officially suggests. And um, so what happens as a result of a world in which uh, relationships come together and fall apart much more easily, and then the public had their spillover effects that the public then has to deal with. And one of those spillover effects, the one that you point to, Mark, is uh, the status of children. And what liberalism, I mean, I think the best liberal theorists suggest that we must, we must abolish the family as a natural unit and create state-centered, what uh, Teresa Metz calls intensive caregiving units, uh, state-created intensive caregiving units, which will be involved in delivering the care that, in this particular case, children need, but perhaps in a different case, old uh, the elderly would need. And the government would create these care units. It could funnel benefits through these care units. And the care units themselves could break up, but new ones could form, and they would have no basis in biology. So this is why I argue that liberalism contemporary liberalism points to the abolition of the family, because every time it tries to deal with the spillover effects, it has the effect of thinning out what the experience of family life would be to such a point where there is no family life left, and you have to create a new kind of unit that might resemble the family in some superficial way, but is a state-created unit that will deal with those spillover effects. This gets us to what may be, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, what may be a, the most serious blow to the rolling revolution, and that would be population decline. I mean, if, if we've got, if, if we see declining fertility rates, I mean, that means, that means we're heading toward the end, right? Well, it could be. I mean, it's, you know, it's totally unprecedented in human history what we have going on. And uh, the, the Western world, the United States and Northern Europe, Northern and Southern Europe, uh, and Eastern Europe for that, uh, for that matter, have, you know, historically low birth rates. And, but we're well, even- Let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you just quickly, Scott, as part of that. Is the rolling revolution contrary to the, 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 the creation and raising of children? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it is. Um, Feminism's designed to uh, free women from the family, and the best way to free women from the family is not to have children. Liberalism can't take a stand on whether or not people should have children, so it does nothing to promote them having children. Sexual liberation theory is the idea that sex should be, um, should be a natural expression of, uh, of desire, but the freedom that you can achieve in sex is aided by contraception so that you can, you can design your life around the sexual experiences you'd want to have. So I do think all aspects of the rolling revolution uh, hinder, uh, erase the idea that human beings should bear children. And children are, 
after all, natural products. Um, that, that is, they're natural products of sexual love, and um, and as natural products of that, um, adults often feel like they have a duty to raise their children. So, you know, so fundamentally, we never choose our children, and our children never choose us. It's difficult to remake that relationship in terms of autonomy. So, what should a regime that emphasizes autonomy do? Not have children. And uh, so it makes, I think, a lot of sense that the rolling revolution has led to steep declines in childbirth. Do you hear the rolling revolutionaries talking about this as a problem ever? Uh, yeah, there was a book uh, in the early aughts um, whose name is now uh, escaping my mind, and that's too bad. Um, uh, but it was written by a liberal. And uh, the argument of the book was with all this population decline going on, the only people who are going to have children are those who don't embrace autonomy. So we're going to have a fundamentalist future unless liberals start recognizing that they'll be outvoted uh, and unless they start having children. Now, I don't know if you can lay back and think of England um, and as a liberal and, uh, and have children as a result of that particular kind of argument, but uh, some liberal thinkers um, have expressed worries about what the future will look like unless the population decline uh, is arrested. But, you know, other than that, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. I mean, you, you go, go, to a, go to a university library and try to find books on population decline. And then go to a university library and try to find books on transgenderism. And you'll see that the transgender books outnumber the population decline books by probably a factor I didn't count but of 50 to one. And so, so that shows you where the energy or the intellectual energy is on that question. It's just not considered to be a serious enough one. And you would really have to call into question the assumptions of the rolling revolution in order to address the population decline. And no one is willing to do that. Right. What would you like to see happen with divorce laws? What, what would, if, if you were the lawgiver? What would you what would you do relative to divorce? Can I have a different people and then give you laws? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the laws have to be some sort of a reflection of the people that we have. And I think there's a decent argument to be made that at this point, stricter divorce laws might lead to even fewer marriages. Um, and so it would be it would be it would require first, I think, a a rolling back of some of the opinions that Americans have about what marriage is. And uh, before one could undertake any kind of a revision on divorce, I mean, it's not clear to me, for instance, that waiting periods are going to have much of an effect. It's not, it's not clear to me, um, even though, you know, the evidence suggests that, uh, that bad divorce, uh, bad marriages, uh, that, people don't divorce, um, uh, end up being healed, you know, over the course of the next 18 months or so. And, um, and the people end up getting along pretty well in a lot of cases. So it, it, it's in theory, a waiting period could help, but it's not clear that individuals who are already putting their foot one step outside the marriage are going to use that waiting period for what it could be designed to be. 
So, I mean, I think, you know, it's the, the, the prospects of rolling, uh, of reestablishing any kind of a limit on no fault at will divorce, it's difficult to imagine given the people we have right now. But that just shows that there needs to be some kind of moral reform before there could really be a legal reform, I think, in this. I mean, and I think legal reform could then trigger more moral reform. But uh, I think the first step has to be a desire for such laws. Chapter 11 is entitled The New Problem with No Name. What is that? The decline of marital character is the new problem with no name. I'm trying to steal this from Betty Friedan. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, that's my ambition. She called the... uh, the depression of housewives, the problem with no name. And I'm calling the decline of marital character, the new problem with no name. And I think there are two ways in which that expressed itself, a kind of lower class way and a kind of upper class way. The, the, the lower classes, and I think this is true of both whites and American blacks to some extent, uh, to, to a, a large extent, um, is that no one is fit for marriage in the sense that they can't rise to the level of commitment, taking responsibility for the future, um, owning that future and acting on its behalf. And that achievement, which is an achievement of civilization, has been lost on a large part of American population. This is what Charles Murray is writing about in uh, Coming uh, of America. Coming apart. Coming apart, I was thinking like, come home America was what, what I was about to say, coming apart. And uh, Kay Heimeritz wrote a book about this and the idea that there's two Americas divided by marriage, the one, uh, and that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem, what we could call the upper class problem, is that, uh, is that women especially value careers more than families. So they have smaller families and have less dedication to it. This is what uh, the literature calls the capstone vision of marriage, where marriage is kind of something you engage in only after you've achieved all the serious things in life, like getting a, getting a college degree and having an internship and getting a career and getting a promotion. And maybe when you're 32, you might consider marrying. And, uh, and then so marriage ends up being a less important part of those people's lives than it is for those who marry younger and they grow and struggle together through hard times. And um, so I think that's another expression um, of the the new problem with no name, the decline of marital character. The title of the book is The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. Professor Yenner, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHighRed.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church 
and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu.